Hello and welcome to Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. My co-host is Adam Butler of Resolve Asset Management Global. And joining us today are John Aikman and Dr. Sean Cleary. Our conversation will revolve around the controversial intended and unintended consequences of sustainable finance and ESG and all of its corresponding aliases, impact investing, SRI, uh, green, or whichever uh, ESG term you like. John Aikman is president and CIO at Resolution Investments. He's also the founder of an artificial intelligence consulting firm, Nord AI Analytics, started in 2019. Previously, John was CIO and portfolio manager at Pinnacle Wealth Brokers and was the winner of the Portfolio Management Association of Canada Award for performance in 2018. John has a law degree from Queen's University, an MBA from the University of Oxford, and has completed advanced certificates on artificial intelligence and fintech from MIT. John is a chartered investment manager and qualified lawyer in Ontario, England, and Wales. Dr. Sean Cleary is the executive director of the newly established Institute for Sustainable Finance based at the Smith School of Business at Queen's University, as well as the founder and director of the Master of Finance program. He holds a PhD in finance from the University of Toronto, an MBA, and the Institute of Corporate Directors designation. He is a CFA charter holder and is a current member of the CFA Society Toronto Advisory Council and a former member of the Board of Directors of the Toronto CFA Society and the Atlantic Canada CFA Society, where he was serving as president. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. John Aikman, Dr. Sean Cleary, welcome to the show. It's great to have you both and very excited to chat with you today. Thanks very much. Thanks. Yeah. Happy to be here. A lot of pedigree on the channel today. <laughs> there certainly is. <laughs> we got to be on our best There behavior. certainly is. <laughs> so uh, to kick things off, uh, why don't you both give us, uh, you know, a little bit about your background um, and uh, how you ultimately got to the sustainable finance space and what you're up to these days. Sure. Sean, why, why don't I start? You're more interesting than me. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll dull everyone down right now, but, uh, I guess my, my start, uh, to, to finance, obviously I began as a lawyer and I, uh, went overseas, went to, went to London and, uh, started working for some of the large investment management firms. Uh, so I, I guess I've had a long uh, interest in ESG before it was known as ESG. I guess we just started thinking about kind of moral investments in some ways uh, a long time ago, which became socially responsible investments or uh, different things like like that. Um, and that's developed in in a big way to a number of different kind of categories of investment. So uh, my experiences in uh, in studying uh, impact investments, at, you know, teaching uh, as well at uh, at Queen's University in an impact investments course uh, was a really really an eye opener, and, and as well as investing um, 
as a, as an investment manager running a, an alternative credit um, portfolio, uh, you started to think about uh, some of the larger issues and the sustainability issues that that we have to uh, confront today, because we have some really big and profound uh, environmental and, as everyone knows, social uh, and governance issues. So. I guess I, I came at this from a little bit of a different perspective, but I've, but I've arrived in, uh, in the, the right time. And, and with that, um, I think that there are some really uh, important investment decisions made and really interesting and attractive investments in, uh, in ESG, um, whether we're just trying to avoid some of the foreseeable climate uh, risks for the future, or we're trying to tackle certain um, certain other types of problems and look for good opportunities for the future. ESG um, is something that will be, I think, the story for the next, you know, 30 years is going to be the general trend about how we tackle some of these large issues like climate change um, and, and, and how we invest is changing. Um, so I also uh, am sit on part of a pension and endowment for a university. And that's really interesting to see the way institutional thinkers uh, institutional investors are thinking about uh, investments for the future. Um, now, now that that said, I think that there are lots of things to discuss, and there, the ESG could create bubbles in certain sectors, um, for sure. Um, but I, I do think that it is a major trend going forward, and it is really, really important uh, that we get it right and pay attention to sustainable finance. So, with that, I guess uh, I turn it over to, to uh, Dr. Cleary. I can tell you that he was wiser in this regard than in, than in fact I was, that he was a forward thinker. And as I was grappling with the implications of artificial intelligence in finance, he was really focused on sustainable finance and was and is clearly a leader in Canada and internationally and has, uh, has written a lot, has uh, spoken a lot on that. So for my part, I'm really glad that you're here today, and it's really uh, it's really great to see you and have your insights on uh, on sustainability. And congratulations on developing the ISF, which is a huge development for Canada globally on sustainability. Well, well, thanks, John. It's like I feel like I should leave now on a high note. And I would say it's it's been it's been an interesting journey uh, setting up the Institute for Sustainable Finance at Smith School of Business, Queen's University. So uh, we we formally launched just just under two years ago, November nineteenth of twenty nineteen. But we're we were uh, in the background working on things for about three years. And I think what's interesting, and you kind of touched upon it, is just the conversations that I have these days versus those that I had two to three years ago. So when we even started to set up the Institute for Sustainable Finance, I was on a call this morning, and the most common question I get asked got asked was, how do you define sustainable finance, right? And... And I can say that I probably don't get asked that as often anymore, although it, mean, it does tend to mean different things to different people, depending on their perspective. But it's really come charging into the mainstream. And, um, and I think it's affecting the ways that uh, institutional investors are looking at things, because clearly they tend to have the longer tails, especially pensions. Um, so they've probably been a little bit ahead of the curve in looking at these. But if you look at um, 
asset managers and the movements that are going on in the retail market too. It's, these are questions that uh, investors are asking their advisors. And also, you know, if we're on, if we're in the middle of a major transition, which we are, you know, if we, if we do get to net zero 2050 or whenever we get there, that's going to change the structure of a lot of industries and a lot of companies. And, uh, you know, as an investor, those are important trends to be aware of. You, you want to know the trend and you want to identify where you want to be on that trend. Do you want to be ahead of it? Do you want to be on it? Or you certainly don't want to be too far behind it. Right. So I think it's driving a lot of the conversations today. And, uh, so we, the Institute for Sustainable Finance, I, I kind of forgot to mention what we are, but we, we were set up at Smith School of Business, but we're a, a collaborative hub, uh, reaching, spawning across academia, industry, and, and regulators with the mission of promoting sustainable finance considerations and mainstream finance. And we pursue that mission on four pillars, research and education, which you normally associate with universities such as Smith School of Business, Queen's University, but also collaboration and outreach. Because these questions and, and getting the right questions and, and providing the right educational opportunities and, and, and focusing on the, the right research questions, because it's a, you know, it's a growing area, requires a lot of conversations with others. And also part of the research and education is getting our research out there to people that are interested. So it's been, it's been a busy three years and uh, the momentum just seems to be growing in the area. And, and of course, <clears throat> now I've kind of switched from mainstream finance to sustainable finance world. And now it's like, everyone's just, everyone I talk to is talking about COP26 these days. Yeah. And it's interesting that a lot of the headlines in the newspaper are COP26 as well. So it's not just, you know, three years ago, it might've been a page on, on page seven, B seven of the report on business. And now it's right on the front page. So I think that's reflective of, of the fact that people are recognizing it's very important. So sustainable finance, um, obviously I think people are starting to gain a better understanding of, of what it means to think sustainably, but I'm curious about how you sort of map the Venn diagram between um, sustainable priorities and finance. I mean, obviously finance traditionally has been about raising capital and allocating capital to productive projects. So how do you guys see the ISF in terms of, you know, bringing together best practices and sustainability with, um, what is traditionally a fairly conservative sector like finance? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think there's, um, Canadian expert panel for sustainable finance was convened in 2019 and, and Tiff Mecklen was one of the four members on there and, and, uh, Andy Chisholm and Barb's van were both on our advisory board were two of the other three members. So they had a, they had what I thought it's a rather lengthy definition, but I think it captures the spirit of it with that. It's, it's, it's about capital allocation, about risk management and about financial processes that integrate sustainability considerations into those, you know, traditional finance areas, right? To finance is about allocating capital and managing risks and developing securities and processes that help to, to do that. And, uh, you know, so I, I always think of sustainable finance to me is 
is about integrating both environmental and social considerations into your decision-making process to promote uh, both a, a more sustainable future for us, but also uh, economic prosperity. And I don't think those two things are as mutually exclusive as, as some people uh, once thought they are. I think with, with change, of course, some things don't benefit from change, but there also comes a lot of opportunity, right? And, and actually it's interesting when, when John was mentioning earlier and getting involved in AI and finance and FinTech, right? Like that was a, that was a major adjustment to the financial markets to have to, to recognize this is now part of our, our day-to-day business. And, and, uh, you know, I, I think for the large part, people recognize that now, and it's been integrated into a lot of operations. So. What are your thoughts? So risk management is, is obviously integral in, in virtually every facet of finance and investment management. Sustainability, do you think that sort of just, just pushes out the definition of risk management to sort of encompass a broader range of, of different risks um, or other, other, other dimensions to sustainability uh, relative to finance that are, that are not properly captured under risk management? And I think that's part of it. And that's probably traditionally how sustainable finance started to become accepted. It was viewing it as if we don't do our due diligence, um, you know, on environmental social factors and clearly governance factors is something that the, the mainstream financial markets addressed over a decade ago and realized well, wow, we really need to pay attention to the quality of our boards of directors and the shareholders and other governance factors. And then, and then it started, you know, with the attention on, on all the, like take the insurers, they can't ignore all the damage that climate change is already doing to their bottom line. Mm-hmm. And then when you start looking at pensions with 30, 40, 50 year tails, and they start looking at infrastructure investments, if they're not uh, paying attention, you know, they, it, it hits their radar right away. It's like not only mitigation of climate change, but adaptation factors are important too. Right. So I think buildings and infrastructure are maybe an example. that's easy, but it's kind of quite obvious to you. So I think it started to make its way in there, but then, and I think correctly that recognizing that also with change comes opportunity. And, and I always think of risk as the flip side of opportunity, right? So, I mean, if there's risks to one company, that means it's opportunities for other companies. And if there's risk to one investment, there's opportunities. And, and the, the idea is, is not to restrict the universe, but to put a broader sustainability lens on the investing universe, right? To, you know, and I think there's a lot of empirical evidence that shows at least in the early returns that, that, you know, the, those, those investors that focused on these things did better. And, you know, it's hard to, you know, it's always hard to quantify some of those stories, but there's certainly not much evidence that they did worse. Right. So, and if you just think of it logically, how can looking at more information, unless it overwhelms you, right. But if you look at more information, and you do so strategically, how can that make your investment performance worse, right? It, it seems like it has to be a good thing, like I said, unless it just 
overwhelms you. So, so what you do is you devise strategies to deal with uh, that, that new information. I think, you know, um, I guess for both of you, Dr. Cleary and John, um, you know, for me, I, I, for, for me, it took me quite, I have to admit, it took me quite a while to tackle the word sustainable. Um, you know, and get past the initial biases of what that word actually entails, like what it, what it, what it actually means. And, you know, I think, I think initially I thought the word sustainable pertained to, you know, natural resources and the sustainability of, of, you know, reserves, uh, whether it was fossil fuels or metals, um, you know, it, it kind of encompasses that as well. And then, and then. You know, the context of the word sustainable, uh, I think, John, it's interesting that you wrote a book about the failure at Lehman. And, and you know, if we're talking about the sustainability of financial markets, you know, there were behaviors going on in financial markets that were unsustainable. And, and so, you know, you could say, was the, was the previous regime of financing and leveraging and, and you know, um, investment banks being involved in uh you know the way that they were the way that investment banks were involved in markets you could say that that was unsustainable and that came to an, an abrupt end because it was unsustainable but that that word has has so much abstraction and and it can be it can be used so specifically and so and then at the same time so ambiguously that i i almost feel like that's part of the problem is that is it's the solution you know it's 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 that universal word that can be used to describe all of these different situations and at the same time it can also be the cause of of biases that prevent people from from taking a deeper dive and learning about sustainability and learning about ESG um because of those biases that that get created by the ambiguity of the word itself so i was wondering if you could comment on on your thoughts on that and and if there's a better way to get through, for example, to advisors on on the true meaning of sustainability and the, you know what you see as 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 the most frank definition of sustainability. Well, it's an excellent point. Uh, you're right. There is no universal definition. We have the UN SDGs or Sustainable Development Goals. There are 17 of them. Right. Everything yeah. from no poverty to no hunger to sustainable cities, uh, responsible consumption, peace, justice, and strong institutions. Like you should really look at what is driving some of these goals and the things that we're headed for. Uh, it, you're making a very sophisticated point about these kind of laudable goals that lead to some strange, um, conditions and positions ultimately leading to some, you know, real crises points sometimes. Um, I, I think it's, it's useful to remember that the spark that started the global financial crisis really had to do with subprime, subprime mortgages. Right. And subprime mortgages were largely driven, uh, driven by government policy government policy to solve other social issues, like too much incarceration, reduction in taxes, things like that. So there was a, there was a real government incentive to support 
putting people in homes that couldn't afford them rather than not putting them in homes at all to increase the tax base and to increase and to solve certain social situations. So, and then if you add on to the fact that the financing arm for purchasing that, like who ultimately owned those assets, really were semi-governmental organizations with the goal of, you know, improving and increasing home ownership in the United States. That was the foundation that spread and metastasized through the global financial markets, along with some errors in terms of the ratings agencies, you know, miss, you know, mismarking certain assets as AAA, which in fact were quite risky. Um, but that's yeah. about financial innovation and trying to solve a specific problem through financial innovation. So I, I agree that there are these really important areas for people to think about. Uh, in terms of investing, and, and the, the obvious example, and the one that that pensions, at least from from what I, where I sit, I can see they spend a lot of time thinking about stranded assets and worrying about worrying about some of these assets. And, and sometimes a lot of the talk of sustainability resolves to a question of do you want to invest in fossil fuels or not? Um, you know, the you, you know University of Toronto Asset Management just categorically decided to exit from fossil fuels and divest completely um that will be a real question mark about whether that's a good financial decision or just a political uh decision uh in that in that regard it has not been the uh, you know that that's not the traditional industry response to any of these things because you know uh fossil fuels the oil industry and related industries to oil make up a huge proportion of you know, the TSX and the S&P. And so you really can't afford to really restrict your portfolio by 30 or 35% of, of the entire market. And that, so it takes some sophistication to think about it. Um, and, and then you look at on the other side, you say, well, let's avoid these risks. Let's, let's avoid these problems that are foreseeable in terms of climate change and government regulation and taxation that are going to come. Uh, on the other side, there are these great opportunities, which might be in you know, EV or uh, or other certain certain technologies associated with that. So I think it's starting to think along those lines. But uh, but we're in the early days of this. I I think it's very important yeah. to be aware that the bedrock of of finance of making decisions that are creative and what isn't you know what's an NPV project you know is is getting harder and harder to think about because we have to take on both of these kind of hard empirical science aspects like climate change and how much carbon goes in the atmosphere on one hand and then on the other hand you have to think about social issues and and these other uh, other areas where there isn't a good you know answer to the question of what's ESG when you combine something that is kind of categorically different on both sides. And and it's it just it just it and it, it explains why ESG ratings are all over the place and that it's not not easy. It, it also explains why um that the uh, bulk of you know ENG, ESG investing has been focused on equities because there's so much data in terms of uh, what's available for equities. Now so so that leads to a strange position of yes there's this big focus on equities but the ESG opportunity, in fact, could be much larger in certain other areas, which would be maybe some of the alternatives and other things. When we're, when we're really thinking about how do we apply 
um, these sustainability goals? And what are the, what are the investment areas that we really need to think about? I, I think that the alternative space is, is a really attractive, interesting space for doing just that. Um, because ultimately, if you're, you know, you're a small investor on a gigantic company and you want to, you want to make some sort of ESG improvement, almost impossible. But if you're, a, you know, you're involved in more of an activist strategy, um, then, then you really maybe have the opportunity to turn the dial on certain, certain investments in an important way and to help them think about what improvements in ESG really mean. Because really, the, one of the underlying underpinning challenges is do we just say, I only invest in companies like Apple or Tesla or something like that? Uh, or uh, do I try and invest in companies that maybe aren't doing well, but that can turn the dial and improve their, their position significantly through innovation and paying attention to some of these sustainability goals? Like one of the most fascinating areas is, is just boring old concrete. And some new technologies associated with that, with like carbon, um, you know, carbon injection and and certain developments from the technological perspective, really may hold a lot of value for the future. Because you know, just some of these industries like steel, oil and gas, and, and yeah. concrete are really very very large emitters, and those <clears> are things we can do something about. So I see a great opportunity in some of those spaces. And yet maybe the places where people have focused historically, I think a lot of them are tapped out to some extent and the valuations maybe reflect uh, a lot of high expectations in, term, in terms of ESG. Yeah. The ESG movement is motivated by a desire to leave sustainability to the greatest extent possible to free market forces. I think one of the challenges that we have in financial markets, and we've chatted about this, John, and other forums, but is that there's perhaps a misalignment of, of time horizons where investors and managers and, and most stakeholders in the investment process are incentivized on a horizon on the order of sort of one year or maybe five years and on the very outside, maybe maybe 10 years or a little longer in, in the case of certain institutions. But the externalities that arise from investment in many long-term global projects um, are expected to pay off on the order of, of decades and in some cases centuries. And so, you know, I, I know that ESG is motivated by a desire to, to leave as much of it as possible to free markets, but to what extent can we leave this to free markets versus combining free markets with regulatory policy as well? And then uh, just speaking to ISF, what role does ISF play in guiding both investment principles um, and then also helping to inform regulatory policy around the world? Yeah, well, um... We, that's a, a tough question, but we, we clearly, we do uh, objective, relevant research and provide education. We don't actually control capital ourselves. So, you know, but we, we definitely are involved in 
in the conversations and contribute to those conversations in terms of, um, you know, research that's important, um, educating, education is huge too, because, cause we need to train the next generation and, and the, a lot of the existing generation, how to answer these questions that are coming up and, um, you know, and if, and if they can't answer them, if you can't answer them, they'll go across the street to someone who, who can answer them. <laughs> like, I think there was a survey by RIA Canada, Responsible Investment Association Canada in 2020 and said that 75% of retail investors wanted to know more about ESG and only 26% of them had it, had that conversation with the retail advisor. So, you know, quite frankly, either. Either the advisors are assuming incorrectly those types of things aren't important to them, or they're just not comfortable enough having those conversations. So I think that that tells you that that the the future is now, and we can't keep waiting because the the next you know the next generation is going to be even more focused on these, and and time is running out. Um, but back to part of your question about policy clarity. It's a transition that, that the private sector is leading in some regards. You know, you see the pensions demanding better disclosures and TCFD to Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures and SASB, which is Sustainable Accounting Standards Boards. All, all eight pensions signed that statement in November and then gave ten, the large, 10 largest similar statement to the SEC in the U.S. And you don't see them banging together that that often for things. So. So there is a lot of pressure, but as you're alluding to, it's hard to start devoting our capital towards longer term solutions like transition minerals could be a, you know, an opportunity for Canada. Right. And until in, 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 you know, clean tech and, and the carbon capture and storage and hydrogen, you know, but until there's a little bit more policy clarity, make, make no bones about it. Most of the capital has to come from the private sector, but the public sector and, and think of infrastructure I mentioned before. Most, you know, a lot of the infrastructure decisions are dictated through policy. So uh, the private sector can't can drive only so far, right? So there needs to be, and we just finished a report on the update of that Canadian expert panel report. And that was one of the key messages to come out. There needs to be more communication between the public sector and the private sector, because this is a, a key strategic transformation. It's not going to happen overnight, but it's already in, in progress and, and we need to do it properly and we need, you know, everyone to know what's going on, right? It's, it's that, that's how you unlock the private capital, right? When, when people have a vision of what it's going to look like in two or three or, or five years. Great point. Yeah. I, I, um, Sorry, um, I, I wanted to just, yeah, just here, uh, go back a, a, a few steps because I, I uh, just to talk about the unintended consequences a little bit of policymaking. And, and John, you mentioned you mentioned that the, you know, the, the financial crisis in, in 08 was set off, of course, by subprime and and that subprime, the birth of subprime was was, you know, an ESG initiative. In disguise, right? I mean, it was meant to, to you know, sort of reform social justice, criminal justice, um, provide, you know, provide some social reform for in, in terms of home ownership, 
and and uh, they kind of backfired, right? I mean, I, I think I think that when you know we we get a lot of mixed commentary from from advisors in our audience, uh, some of it is angry, right? Some of it is this anger about about how policymaking is is you know threatening to hollow out the energy sector, for one, and um, you know. So we end up seeing, we end up looking at at unintended consequences quite a bit, and and so you know when you look at at you know other unintended consequences potentially of ESG, one of those is the inflationary pressure that it is is uh, signaling to put on on uh, metals, for example, on the metal on the metals market, and on you know right now on natural gas, and uh, you know that inflation in general is going to victimize the most vulnerable quintile of the population uh because you know the cost of the cost of energy for one becomes uh untenable and and then of course you know there's there's the corollary argument that the cure for high prices is high prices but <laughs> but um you know the the so there's there's a lot of you know you can tell something's definitely moving forward because there's a lot of controversial views on it on one side a lot of anger and and sort of dismay about what ESG actually means and then and then on the other side you've got the ambivalent you know who don't care either way don't think much of ESG or they just think it's a marketing ploy and and um, so you know how do you how do you overcome that problem of of you know the unintended consequences. Uh, another another sort of unintended consequence. You know, I I, I don't know if you've I, I brought it up in another um, another conversation, which was the uh, the movie um, Anthropocene, where the coal mining in Germany is highlighted, and that they're t literally tearing up Germany to get lignite to power their electrical utilities. And, and this is because 10 years ago or, or uh, thereabouts, the uh, Fukushima event happened and uh, German politicians decided that they were going to mothball half of their, half of their nuclear plants. And so now literally they're not only are they tearing up the, uh, you know, um, rural countryside of Germany, but they're starting to encroach on towns and villages and eating eating up the land underneath the towns and villages. And the, so there's this scene in Anthropocene where these these harvesters or these lignite harvesters are are digging out, you know, acres and acres of, of land uh, each day and destroying the German countryside because there's no power. So so now Germany has the highest, some of the highest emissions problems as a result of making the decision to mothball nuclear and 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 then they're running up against shortages so they're buying they're buying electricity from france right. which is nuclear which sort of defeats the whole purpose in the first place of having mothballed nuclear except that it displaces the, the nuclear problem you know in <laughs> france but <laughs> But so you've got you've got all these policy making decisions that that have an equal and opposite reaction, you know, just like the law of thermodynamics. You you have this equal and opposite reaction uh, that's happening with every substantial policy decision. And maybe you know, 
maybe I feel like like maybe maybe the the focus of of ESG should become technology, a technology focus as opposed to let's cure all these social problems and let's cure these environmental issues and let's let's fix governance. Um, you almost you almost want to. I, I almost feel sometimes like if if you know you you have this political spearheading of the ESG term. And and uh, you know the the intentions are wonderful, right? But sometimes the road to the the, <laughs> the road to hell is yeah. paved with good intentions, right? And uh, so I, I wonder, you know, what you know, what your thoughts, what how either of you handles those those sort of controversial uh, feedback. You know those items of controversial feedback yeah, from you know the pushback. A, like there are several things to unpack there, and it's a it's probably the hardest question I've ever been asked. I think. Yeah. But let me put it this way: Are you are you right about technology? Without question, you're right. And it's not. It's a little bit more on the line here. I I think that there is a reality of global warming, and uh, there's a real problem with the oceans and uh, the implications of that. If we start to see uh, a dead or deadening ocean with increasing temperatures such that oxygenation just doesn't really work anymore and you have large portions of the ocean that are in fact dead, um, that, is, that, is, that is foreseeable if we keep on the current path. There are, you know, as, as an example, there are plastic islands. One is floating around the Pacific that is the size of Texas. Now, there are seven of them globally. There are, there's a massive yep. real problem with the environment, without question. It's, 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 it's a massive the, problem. The gyre. You are, in fact, entirely correct when you yeah. point out that some of our solutions to this will lead to further challenges in that regard. We want to build these, you know, turbines, the wind turbines and all, and we want infrastructure spending. I mean, we just had, we had a $1 trillion infrastructure bill in the United States just passed today. The S&P was up 0.02%. I mean, it, it's entirely, it seems priced into the market mm -hmm. where there's no bump for a gigantic piece of spending. So. You are absolutely right that I think technology is really a key portion of it. I think um, it, it, I, I still think we need to get our heads around all these all these different goals and going in different directions. Uh, that in in its worst form, uh, that ESG can be seen as kind of a, a form of greenscaping or just uh, you know good marketing to to get to people. I mean, certain regulators have taken that problem really seriously in the SEC and Europe. Uh, the European regulators have come down hard on managers that that are pretending to be sustainable, but really actually aren't aren't doing that. So uh, I think yeah. that that has to be driven. Like the you've got to get the uh, bad actors off the field to some extent. Uh, but to your point, yeah, I, th I think we're going to have to hone down all these diverse, um, you know, things that would be uh, great to do, but maybe won't turn the dial, or maybe pointing in a different direction than we would hope. Uh, and, and so some of these goals like net zero, um, by 2050 and others, and that's a very specific one. We're either there or we're, we're not going to be there. And it's probably not going to be sufficient for companies to go out and buy carbon credits to kind of 
cross the line. Uh, I think that people are going to be looking very closely. There are lots of companies today that consider themselves net zero, not because they aren't large emitters, but because they can afford to buy those carbon credits. So uh, there's a certain yeah. amount of arbitrage going on internationally, and we do have a, a, a really complicated system. And, and look, the, the, it's it's more intractable when you think about the nature of those emissions. If you just focus on the carbon emissions and the relative size that uh, you know that China plays uh, in that versus the United States or Europe, really, really fundamentally challenging to to deal with uh, a developing emerging market, uh, you know, and, and trying to get them to pull back on all the heavy industries, which in fact have been you know, they've been relocated to China because they were able to operate efficiently because they didn't have the same sort of environmental protections and, and regulations associated with that. So now we want to say, by the way, shut those down now that you built those plants. That's going to be a really uh, tough political call. But to, to the solution to any international problem, and you're right, mm -hmm. like it, it's kind of like nuclear weapons, right? Like, it doesn't matter that where the nuclear weapons are. The United States can say no more nuclear weapons on our shores, but you know everything you know, you know, you know uh, outside of Bermuda is fine for nuclear weapons. That doesn't solve your problem. You have to get together and agree on the rules of the road. So closing off some of those externalities, those free lunches that people are having, where like dumping into the oceans and you know looking for, you know, the international arbitrage situation of which country can we go to such that they won't care that we're dumping this, these toxic uh, chemicals into the, uh, into the ocean. Those, those are things that we kind of, we have to come together and agree on, on some of those. And the only way to get something good out of it, that I think is by, by doing kind of what uh, COP, you know, 26 is trying to do, which is set, establish rules of the road. And and because we've had kind of a, a certain lack of, of leadership from the traditional sources in some ways, uh, it's been it's been more uncertain than ever that that Europe and the United States and other other locations develop their own uh, rules in some ways or or have them in transition as we speak. Um, and and then the question will be what you know I take Professor Cleary's point is makes a lot of sense in the normal course. It should make sense to invest in clean companies that don't destroy the earth, that don't do horrible things to people, that don't, you know, toy companies that don't use lead paint are better than toy companies that do. Uh, that should yeah. be simple for us to, to get to. But as we start to really see the overall uh, performance, like I think we're in too early in this in some ways, that in it, some of these, some of these issues that we're going to have to address are going to require investment. And the two big areas that you're going to have to think about for investment are what, how are we going to invest in these technologies to get them to the next stage? Because venture capital is not going to get us there. They, that is the wrong model. They are going to be, they're going to be flippers. They're going to get right. you up, turn you into a unicorn, and then they want out. That's, that's, that's good for your market share. That's good for your returns, but that is horrible in terms of building big kind of infrastructure-like technologies that are going to be transformative on the world to give them the time and the research that is needed to kind of uh, to get them to that next level, such that you can develop some of these great new technologies that uh, 
that are going to really help and, and help not just in an economic sense, but also in solving the problem sense of, you know, get hitting our emissions targets and also looking at, you know, the, t the temperature issues in, in particular, like it's, it's really great that, that we've set these targets, but we don't know whether those targets are in fact going to be exactly right. And we don't know what the impact will be or what the unintended consequences of some of our behaviors in fact will be. We, you know, that those are, those are the things that I think we're going to have to think of as a really important part of this, because this is a, it's pretty clear that uh, if we listen to, um, you know, the, uh, the kind of the big thinkers in this area and then like David Attenborough is looking at the destruction of the natural world. We're in the midst of certain profound extinction events, and we may need to change our targets to address that. It may, it may be that we write down that it's a 2% target or one and a half percent or whatever it is. But in fact, if that is really devastating for the world and not a world that we want to live in, uh, then then we're going to have to adjust that. And we're going to, and, and so I think that people need to be ready for continued change in this area, which is, which is what I think from an, from an investment perspective means that you're going to have to be on top of this on a continuing basis and watch out for the big risks, as well as watching for some of those big opportunities, because I know that EV was a big one and, you know, uh, that that's been one in the past. There are more coming through. They may not sound that sexy, but they're fantastically interesting when they have broad, uh, you know, scale and scope for some of the new technologies that are coming up. Because some of them, uh, some of them are de definitely developing and coming forward. So let's go there, because um, I think a, a large segment of listeners are going to are here for the investment implications. Yeah. And Sean, you mentioned some specific examples of what might be near-term or intermediate-term opportunities for investment um, where investors may be able to generate outside returns and also that are in the direction of sustainability and long-term thinking. If I recall, one of the sectors or segments that you mentioned was transition metals. Did I get that right? Or transition metals? What maybe, do you want to start there and, and maybe provide a few other examples of interesting potential areas of investment? Yeah, and I, and I would qualify that these are, are pretty early on, but if we look at the development of the EV uh, car market, right, then we, we're going to need uh, the, the minerals, the metals that go into uh, producing those batteries. And we are you know, jumping on China's well ahead of us already in that regard. I wrote, you know, on the flip side, they have, they're still building coal mines there. So we're ahead of them in that at least, but, but, but they've taken a very concentrated effort and, and you now see announcements by Biden and, and by Canada that, that, that this is coming forward. So I think, you know, with Canada and, and here's something, um, this provides ESG, this is an example of ESG factors providing us an opportunity because we can produce some, uh, some of those minerals cleaner than others and certainly with less of the social issues that go on at others and, and you know, hopefully the governance of some of our companies uh, score well on, on that regard too. So I think that's like an interesting example of, you know, taking the opportunity out of this and, and I think it's, you know, it's, uh, 
it, it's well recognized. I would say there's still early stage opportunities, but they, they, sh you know, if we develop the market correctly, and this is where back to the previous conversations, it's, it's about doing things correctly too, right? Like it, you know, if, if we don't develop it correctly, maybe we miss out on that opportunity or part of that opportunity. Right. So, and that's why we need to have, um, the regulators in the private sector and the suppliers of capital, all, all having their voice, uh, heard. Right. And I think those are important considerations we need to, to really open the lines of communication better so that the, everyone hears what the other parties are saying is important to them. Yeah. John, John, thanks, John. Do you have, John, any other ideas to add to sure. the um, investment I, opportunities? I, I think that's right. I think traditional Just investments make in terms theme. of equities, if you're for active management, there's a real opportunity there. If you're just looking for access, there are lots of quality ESG ETFs to think about and let someone else who's focused on that think about what ESG means and, and, and just allocate that way can be a, a relatively easy way for, for advisors to think about getting access to this. There's everything from, um, you know, when I think about ESG, I don't think about it as like you would immediately know uh whether whether a business was esg or not just by saying it's ev you could have really horrible uh businesses that are electric vehicle businesses because they're so destructive that they use horrible labor practices they do other things like that i think what's really important is to think about um you know to understand that each area that we might want to invest in um you know so there'll probably be more emphasis on biofuels renewables. There's going to be more focus on water resources like that. Uh, healthcare is going to be important. Um, everything from, uh, you know, oil and gas. I, I, I know that people think that that's like the antithesis, but we could have a really big change in some of those oil and gas companies that, that really could turn the dial in some important ways. And if anyone uh, can do that, I, I, think it's, I think it's those areas. Um, because they have the capital and they have the determination and they feel the hit more than anyone else. And then, you know, everything from looking at fintech or new developments in certain areas, I think are, are really important for us to think about new, um, sustainable apparel companies and other things like that. New companies that are looking at packaging, uh, very interesting, uh, you know, uh, sustainable packaging is a huge problem. Just the proliferation of plastics and the need for certain alternatives. It's not easy right now, but if you can get in on some of those opportunities, that's massive, right? That is a, a biodegradable plastic. They exist. They just aren't developed in the same way. So I, I think that there are lots and lots of investment areas to really think about and to focus on in the traditional markets. But I would say that the thing that I would expect more than anything, uh, is that I, I would expect more inflation in some of these some of these sectors that are considered hot from an ESG perspective, and that um, and and that we are seeing significant inflation and significant money printing associated with that, as we've talked about. You know that, that if it, you know the even though the S and P is up pretty much a hundred percent year over year since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, you know, money printing is up more than 400% in terms of just the United States alone in terms of N1. 
So you have a massive amount of capital that's come forward. You have, we know that inflation for the past four or five months has been at least 5%. And we know that the risk-free rate is much closer to uh, zero or in many locations it is in fact negative. So on a real return basis, what I think the advisor should be focused on is looking for inflation adjusted uh, investments that are, uh, that are kind of suited to the new economy that are reflective of kind of some of the ESG factors. And to that point, I think that some of the technology areas clearly are doing better than others that have seen that uptick. The traditional areas uh, for inflation, inflation hedging, uh, you know, gold has been a disappointment in that regard. Uh, but then again, other metals, there's been significant uh, uptick there. And then also, like, think about the new new areas and areas of technology to think about when we're thinking about that. Like, you know, it's it's something to look at uh, crypto uh, investments, crypto assets, and and really alternative investments because when we're dealing with a difficult situation, uh, a difficult changing rules, that's a really great opportunity for investment managers to recognize that when you have an inefficient allocation of capital, because they can make investments that, that capitalize on that. So I would be looking very carefully at certain types of venture capital, uh, private equity, private debt, infrastructure investments for sure, uh, and, thinking, and thinking more broadly about their uh, investment horizon, because we tend to put people into, um, into really liquid investments, but there's a liquidity premium, an illiquidity premium that can be gained from thinking more long-term and not in the traditional locations. So I think that, you know, you should be really looking at, uh, you know, fixed income alternatives in today's market that, that can beat inflation are a very attractive option, and and they they exist, but they may not be the same as uh, or or as easy as kind of investing in your tri traditional AAA bonds or things like that. Yeah, there's an interesting path dependency to the transition, right? And we're seeing some of the effects of that right now in the fact that you've got, for example, University of Toronto, and you've seen similar announcements from major pensions in the United States and other um, institutions in Canada and in other jurisdictions where they're divesting of, um, you know, companies and industries that do not serve the sustainable agenda in the long term. But the consequence of that, of course, in the short term, is that there is a dearth of capital for the investment in expanding production of for example, um, petrochemical-based energy resources, and then also how to think about expanding the um, capacity for the production of, of other transition metals. I, I'm thinking about this report from the International Energy Agency that came out recently, which highlights that electric vehicles are made with six times more minerals than internal combustion engine-based vehicles. For example, the battery for one Tesla Model 3 contains 56 kilograms of nickel, 7 kilograms of cobalt, almost 7 kilograms of manganese, and 85 kilograms of copper. And what this means is you need a 40-fold increase in the production of lithium and nickel and 20 times as much copper, graphite, cobalt, etc. Um, then we 
were able to physically mine in 2020, right? So there's this interesting transitionary period where I know we need to look to the future and ensure that we're investing in tech and regulation and policy that provides for a sustainable future, but then also providing a path to allow us to transition without eliminating the input to production that currently serves the global economy. So, you know, from, from the ISF perspective or from the perspective of ESG advocates in general, how, did, how do you view the sort of path dependence or asynchronous nature of when these technologies are, the sustainable tech is able to take over um, versus needing to invest in legacy um, uh, facets of production in order to, to sustain growth in the interim? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked me that, Adam, because I'm getting the impression here that when we're talking about ESG integration investment, that we're not talking about the same thing. Because in my perspective, it is mainstream looking at all of your investments, not just looking for, you know, transition minerals or wind, you know, renewable energy, and then getting rid of anything that's not, uh, you know, hitting this trend. Clearly, we need financing for those things. But, but integrating ESG considerations is not just about that. And it's not just about divesting. In fact, most investors don't divest, or maybe they do it quietly, but they do engage a lot, right? And 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 that's the the thing about the investors that stay in those industries is then they, they have an impact on a lot of you know they they do. It's an opportunity for active management. I think John mentioned it before, right? And I think there was a survey. RBC does this survey of institutional investors every year. And last year, two-thirds of those surveyed said they used ESG integration because they thought they could generate alpha. And 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 you've all been in the business for a while. You know you can generate alpha the best if there's something that everyone else isn't paying as much attention to, right? Or there's or there's not widespread information. You know, that's why small stocks for a while and so on and so forth. And and that's why we had quant strategies evolved, right? And then as soon as everyone got the same information and recognized that they started those arbitrage opportunities disappeared. And I'd say we're getting close to that point because although there's an information lag, which is why investors and those big pensions and the black rocks and the, and everybody's demanding better information. But as long as there's a bit of an information void that creates an opportunity, it also creates a risk, right? Because you're holding uh, securities and assets in your portfolio. And if you don't have the full picture on them, then it creates, you know, a, a risk. Whereas if you can assemble that full picture, it creates an opportunity. So I think, uh, you know, for generating alpha, it's probably one of the best areas out there today. But for the very reason that it's very frustrating to those involved in it, the, this lack of good information, but we're seeing pressures like we saw an announcement from the CSA a week or two ago uh, about movement to integrate TCFD reporting, right? And uh, those types of things that's coming on the, the heels of the institutional investors and the general public for better information. 
And, and the funny thing about that is that will be beneficial to the companies, even though it will be a, a, a bit of a hassle. Well, it will be a hassle for them the first time, but understanding where they are, where their carbon footprint is, where their strengths are and their governance structure and their social issues. Those are things you want to know ahead of time, right? Because the funny thing too, and I was going to mention COVID earlier, having these conversations, everyone said once COVID hit, that was going to be, nobody was going to be paying attention to ESG factors at all anymore, right? And in fact, it was just the opposite because you said, wow, a big systemic risk that everyone knew was a possibility since SARS that we didn't adequately prepare for hits us and nails us. What does that sound like, right? It's like climate change and, and we're getting annual, we're getting monthly reminders of the effects of climate change, right? With flooding and I used to love to go to Toronto Island, two of the last five summers, you couldn't get over there, right? And, and, and it's just getting warmer. So, so these are not, you know what I mean? These types of what we call isolated events and, and wildfires are unlikely to get less frequent since we're continuing to get warmer, even if we get to 1.5 degrees or two degrees. So, so the world is changing whether we like it or not. And, um, and, and I think the, the pragmatic oh. thing to do is to start thinking about that and planning for it and, and that. Oh, oh. <laughs> He'll be back. You know, it's funny because the game theoretic, there's some game theoretic challenges that we're seeing some of this play out where you have this underreaction, overreaction, um, effect so for, for example at the moment you've got the cop 26 meeting happening the symposium and they happen to be taking place at a time of skyrocketing energy prices globally you've got a massive natural gas crisis in europe you've got a um china shutting down the electrical grid or or um you know phasing in and out different regional uh electrical grids which is, which is impacting the production of a wide of goods. At the same time as the COPT26, the 26 meetings are happening, and you can see some of the effects of the timing in the policy response that's coming out of the symposium where, you know, sadly, the, or, you know, I, I think from one perspective, sadly, they're walking back a lot of the policies on reduction on the reliance of coal or reduction on the, on the reliance of, um, carbon-based energy sources because they're recognizing the impracticability of um, instituting these anti-carbon-based fuel policies too aggressively before we have effective scalable substitution, right? So, you know, we have this, this very zealous policy stance at the last symposium it guided global companies, you know, in the petrochemical industries to reduce investment. And we see these in the CapEx numbers over the past decade, where year in, year out, global coal and oil and gas exploration production companies each year have invested less and less and less in CapEx. And now that's resulting in, for, for that reason and a variety of other reasons, in a massive spike in energy prices at exactly the wrong time for the current symposium to try and set policy guidelines going forward, right? So it's really hard to account for all of these potential interaction effects and path dependencies. 
Um, so I think we need to pick up a very nuanced and tempered approach to how we think about this. And then again, the University of Toronto and some other organizations taking, and I think Sean, you spoke to this, right? The opportunity here is not divestment, but rather guiding investment in the necessary um, sectors of the economy in order to perpetuate global growth and meet its shorter and intermediate term objectives, while also guiding industry onto a path of sustainability, right? Do you have, what, what are your thoughts on how to best thread that needle from, your, from the conversations you guys are having? Well, uh, on, the, on that issue of uh, divestment, I, I mean, look, look, I agree with, with Sean that this is not, there is no good or bad ESG company. They're factors we have to take into account and we're going to have to pay attention to now more than ever. And if, when you look at kind of a nuanced risk management approach that incorporates ESG, it's not to say that every single thing matters. There's lots of, in, there's lots of investments where the key consideration is not greenhouse gas emissions. It could be something else. It may be human rights. It may be your product design, life cycle, things like that. Uh, there are, you know, I would encourage people to get familiar with that because ESG is really just about, and sustainability is just about integrating that into your investment decisions to avoid kind of obvious risks and to, you know, to look for these good opportunities for the future. And that's really about, you know, capital allocation is about just that. We're not changing the nature of the game at all. We're just adding a more nuanced approach to recognize that, hey, the world is changing. Governments are changing. You know, you have these big international governments coming together to think about these things, to set standards. And we need to, we need to be aware that the next thing that comes after they get you to agree to do this, and they're getting many of the big investors to agree to do just that, to follow the UN principles of responsible investing or other, other kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> benchmarks to some extent. The next step is regulation and taxation for people who don't. They want to encourage people to aim in the direction that they want to go to. But to uh, to your point, is it is it obvious uh, immediately? Um, you know, th th there are there are going to be real challenges going forward. I personally am not a fan of divestment. I think that that is a terrible idea. That these are important areas to invest in. Uh, people still drive cars. They still need to heat their homes. They still need all the ancillary products that are associated with this, uh, the plastics that, that make medical devices or, uh, you know, all sorts of different products. I think that you can't just kind of walk away and make this a political decision. That to me is not investing. And when people do make political decisions, then uh, I think that whenever people are making non-economic decisions purely for p political and then that's, that's, that's maybe a short-term trading opportunity. So when you see that happening and you see a lot of people walking away from a certain industry that they consider to be dirty or, or bad in some regard, and could put that in quotes, uh, that, that that's probably an area that you'd want to pay attention to. So as a contrarian, you, you might want to go along, go with the flow in certain regards and say, yeah, clean companies that do good things, that are, follow ESG criteria. Yeah, that's that's a good that's a good company in general, um, but if there are these kind of unloved gems for whatever reason, then that can also be as from a contrarian perspective, you can you can take that perspective and uh, and invest uh, 
for that. Now, that will require, as, as you pointed out, Adam, a different liquidity profile in terms of investments. And you're going to have to suffer through a um, certain period of time when you when it may take a certain amount of time for people in in Germany to recognize that there are these horrible consequences associated with their kind of categorical decision, like, you know, Fukushima, horrible disaster, horrible, you know, entirely man-made disaster, by the way, uh, and and probably isn't even over, but to to then take it to the extreme that you want to now say, no, no, nuclear is not, not, uh, not uh, viable at all. And we need to move away from this. Yeah, that's uh, that's probably the the wrong lesson to take from it. More like improve your safety and, and, and security associated with some of these important energy decisions in these important industries. But uh, to some extent, you can feel that the baby may be thrown out with the bathwater on uh, on some of these. As an investor, I think that that that's usually that can be a bad thing initially for investors, but it's often the case that we recognize that there's a baby and that we have to take steps to uh, to address that. But to to the larger point of is the environment changing from a finance perspective? Without question. What people are allocating to is changing and the cost of capital. Clearly, people are trying to uh, provide incentives to give uh, certain projects life. Uh, and then, and, and, and with that, maybe the, the learning lesson is uh, with this whole sustainability area, you probably do need to rethink your uh, your investment horizon, the liquidity that you need for your investments, and try drawing out and extending it uh, to over a longer period of time, so that you could look at rare earth metals or some of the other you know semi precious metals that are important from from a certain perspective, and not necessarily uh, look at it day by day, but take a strategic viewpoint to recognize that there are these imbalances and that it may be that that these are you know uh, are unloved uh, right now or that that in the future there's this huge opportunity that just hasn't been recognized yet rare earth metals they aren't making more of them they take an incredibly long time to develop a a working functional mine and that these are the types of things that will be truly you know vastly more valuable for the future uh, when we're trying to uh, to address these, you know, the needs of EV and also the, the ancillary products where remember that this is, this is a technological revolution that is happening at the same time as an ESG revolution. Can't the underpinning of a lot of this is that we have these new technologies that are really transformative and they're transformative in the sense of they're displacing old industries, old jobs, the way we do things in a fundamental perspective. And now you know, we have robots that are doing many of the jobs that that were that humans were doing before, and those robots uh, are also uh, working on this. They are are beneficial from a sustainability perspective. So there's always this this balance that we're going to need to tease out, um, because if if we just thought about answering the question of should we have uh, you know fewer cars on the road. That, you know, from a certain perspective, you'd probably say yes, but then you said, well, but what about the consequences of of that? What about the consequences to the economy and to jobs and people where you have the U.S., United States alone, said before, 20 million people, their their direct job is driving. Now you have, you maybe have the technology to be able to implement this, but are we ready for the knock-on effect of 
of that from a social perspective. And then you think on top of that, you're working in, we, we have to, we, then we realize, oh, but we have to agree on all this and we have to get these, these policies through. Um, and we work in a democratic system for the most part in the, the Western economies, such that with a four-year right, term, you four -year term <laughs> you, you know, thinking long-term is pretty difficult when you're doing that. And then, and then, and then look at the reality, largest infrastructure bill ever passed since FDR. And the S&P is effectively flat for the day. Mm -hmm. Now that's breathtaking, not, not for what happened, but for what didn't happen. It's really, it's really remarkable. And then, and then with all of the big challenges that are looming, um, I, I think that, you know, sustainability is super important to focus on. I don't think that there are easy answers, but I truly believe that active management, it, you know, if there's any area that you want to focus on, to get active after active management, I mean, the implementation of ESG factors is one of the areas that it is so important because people need to be watching this very carefully on a regular basis. And it's not just because someone did well, you know, last year on their ESG, it actually could be changing this year on an ongoing basis. And it's, and those are the things that people are watching for um, carefully. Yep, I, John, I, I would tend to agree with you on you know, in terms of ESG investing, that that this is a um, you know, it's the active side that's really going to be able to find and unearth, you know, the opportunities as opposed to the passive side. Um, seems to me on the passive side, there's a lot of shareholder engagement from the likes of Larry Fink, for example, and and but it's very generalized, and it's a you know, it it amounts to a very generalized call for for ESG. Uh, reform, and and then that's where you get because of sort of uh, an attempt at standardizing ESG, you end up with you know uh, the um, greenscaping or greenwashing that's happening, uh, you know, so sort of systemically where where it's happening. It's very it's not it's not widespread, but it seems to be that that it's it's fairly easy to jump on the uh, the green bandwagon or the ESG bandwagon. Uh, just by you know meeting the minimum requirements, adding diversity to your board, or or uh, you know starting initiatives to clean the environment around your your you know your properties and and uh, or around your production and or you know any other sort of you know social or, or environmental or governance reform, but on the active side, I, I found. You know, in conversations with portfolio managers who are active ESG managers, um, you know that there was far more interesting conversations happening at the active level on the bottom up side. So where you have passive, where you know passive is more of a top down approach to ESG on on the active side, really you have a bottom up, more bottom up stock by stock or company by company uh, mentality and. One of the interesting, you know, I think one of the interesting stories to come out of a conversation was, was, you know, with regards to a mining company who had, uh, and I, I can't name the mining company, but it was surrounding the issue of, of uh, some of their indigenous staff and, uh, you know, needing to go on their annual hunt, <laughs> right? And, and so this one particular mining company uh, said, okay, you know, go, go on your hunt. And when you're done, come back and, and resume, right? 
and 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 that singular sort of uh you know um not permission but that 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 company opting to give their employees their indigenous staff employees that flexibility to to leave without facing the threat of unemployment made a huge difference in their in their turnover in the turnover of their you know their retention as well uh, is what i'm getting at um but that same active manager could then go to other mining companies in their portfolio and say hey so and so is doing this and it had a, it had a massive impact on their retention, their turnover of their staff. They let their indigenous employees go on their annual hunt and come back when they were done. And, and you know, their indigenous employees are far more happy. They're uh, far more likely to be loyal to the company, far more likely to, you know, enjoy their jobs more because they don't feel like they're being blocked from doing things that are very important to them culturally. Um, so that, 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 that sort of active management, uh, feedback mechanism was in, incredibly, at least in my estimation, it was incredibly valuable that, 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 you know, an active portfolio manager could have that conversation with one company and then carry that over to the next or to the others and, and share that same feedback. And then, and likewise, I mean, it could be something company B is doing it goes back to company A and say, why don't you try this? And, and so those, those little, those little individual, you know, tips and, and, and sharing of, of policy decisions at the company level, as opposed to at the, you know, po political level, uh, would have more impact than, than, than sweeping changes, uh, sweeping policy changes might have unintended consequences, but company by company, you might have more impact if you, if you were sharing knowledge across a portfolio. Yeah. And it goes to this idea right. of stewardship and engagement. Yeah. Our, our, we are stewards of capital and you want, you know, our investing companies to do the right thing. Um, there are ways to do that. Uh, but, and there are ways to engage and to talk to them about specific issues. But as you say, you know, it's not always air quality or energy management. It could be labor practices or human rights or yeah. health and safety that are really meaningful to a particular company. And in all of those, all of those dimensions are ESG considerations. So, uh, yeah, to, to your point, they're, they're by the, the concern that I would have about categorical approaches to things like that saying, I divest, I'm out, is to really... Uh, you know, is to make a political decision when what you really want to see is a more sophisticated approach to making things better and, and helping uh, get there and monitoring for these issues. Yeah. So, you know what, if you invest in a toy company, you may think, what, what does that have to do with ESG? But if it, you know, again, if it covers those toys with lead paint, you got a big problem. And, it, and that is an ESG problem that the health and safety of your customers is really important. And, and so that's why taking on some of these larger issues, whether this is the, you know, the task force on, uh, you know, for, for reporting or for SASB or other, some of these, uh, multinational organizations that are impacting things, they're not asking you to, to divest. They're asking you to be thoughtful and about your investments and to add something new 
to it to consider these sustainability factors. And when you really look at what they're asking, what they consider to be material risks in different sectors, I think people will, will, will change their mind about what sustainability is and really think that, you know what, living in a world where we do take these things into consideration is better. Companies that, that don't categorically just tell people to get lost and, and have labor unrest and strikes and things like that versus accommodating people to, you know, go on their, their annual hunt. By the way, you know, General Motors does that with, you know, deer season. Uh, and that's, that was the negotiated term of their, uh, yeah. their collective agreement. Just making those kind of the, the, those easy wins, uh, I think is important. And, and to your point, technology and investing in technology for the future, thinking about active management in, in a more sophisticated way and just, uh, and taking a longer viewpoint are things, these are the really key considerations to just really understanding what ESG means and why it's important for us to go forward with this, because these mandates are not going away. What, you know, there's really good statistics on how important it is to certain, certain investors that, that we consider these things for the future. And, and yeah. the wonderful part for many advisors to think about is people are making non-economic decisions in this way. So in some respects, they're not going to be as focused on performance in the same way as they would be if it was just a purely financial model that you're running, that people want a better world. And if they feel like they're making investments that are encouraging that or with investing with sophisticated managers who are encouraging the right decisions to be made, then they will be more receptive to that, to those returns that, that, that do um, reflect that rather than the purest question of who's the highest performer in my sector and, 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 you know, maximizing uh, financial returns at, at all costs. So. Yeah. Uh, to your, um, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Adam. No, no. If you wanted to respond directly, go ahead. I, yeah. I just wanted to go back to something John had said earlier, which was, you know, you mentioned, for example, I, I love what, one of the areas that I personally love about some of the uh, sort of more selective ESG opportunities are in the areas of new innovations. And you mentioned cement, you know, where, where you know, cement companies are, are taking, are sequestering carbon dioxide, uh, which is captured in the cement, and it actually produces a, a technologically better cement, more, more resilient uh, cement. But there's, you know, that's, so that's one sort of alchemy that's really interesting where, you know, you're taking, you're taking carbon dioxide and turning it into a, an element by combining it with other, with other carbon atoms, uh, to, to make cement stronger. And you, so you can actually permanently sequester carbon dioxide in the cement. And then you have other companies like, like carbon engineering, for example, where, you know, they have these gigantic fans and they're sucking the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere in the, you know, maybe in the middle of the desert and they're turning that into, into fuel. Right, they're turning that into biofuels by by again combining it with other carbon atoms and and then liquefying it, or or making solid fuel and and uh, there's other you know technologies similar ones where where carbon dioxide is you know when when I think the problem is that while those opportunities are are you know can be exciting to contemplate, they're not getting the kind of capital that they should have. Um, you know, one complaint I heard was was that you know. These companies were coming up at a time when, when uh, you know, the marijuana phase was 
was in in a, in a boom, you know, where where all the capital was going to marijuana companies uh, to to weed, right? And and <laughs> so it was impossible to raise money for for ESG companies mm -hmm. while that was happening, while while you know all the capital was being mm -hmm. sucked away by weed, and and so. So, you know, you have competing interests too, right? So these, these companies can be very exciting opportunities to contemplate that, that a company can build a fan array that, that collects carbon dioxide and turns it into gas uh, or diesel or, or, you know, some other biofuel and, and or turns, you know, captures carbon and turns it into algae. You know, those types of situations should be getting more attention, but they're competing with, they're actually competing with, you know, the, the, whatever is the fad of the day, or they're competing with technology stocks, they're competing with Bitcoin, they're competing with, with so many other, you know, uh, more sort of manifest opportunities that are, that are, you know, writ large in the market and sort of writ large on, on things like Reddit. And, and they're not able to, they're not able to raise those incremental, uh, amounts of capital. And that's where I think ISF, um, Dr. Cleary, you know, comes in very, uh, you know, comes at a very interesting time in the evolution of ESG, and that's that there needs to be definitely more education, more focus on on the capital market learning about how to find and identify these opportunities or how to value these opportunities so that they can properly finance them. Um, you know, and 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 not be led away by the nose by by whatever's hot that day or hot that year. Um, otherwise, otherwise, you know, the ESG sector, which solves very long-term problems is going to have a very hard time competing with companies that solve immediate problems or solve for, for immediate, uh, you know, immediacy in terms of, of, you know, the immediate opportunity that they, that they provide to investors. So it's, it's very seldom that investors can look 10, 15, 20 years out and say, yeah, this is where I want to go because of the impact it's going to have 20 years from now. But it, it's much easier to say, well, you know, if I buy Tesla, it could, it could become, you know, double what it is now for whatever reason, or, or if I buy Bitcoin, Bitcoin, <laughs> not buy, <advice>. right. <laughs> right. How, 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 how does the, uh, the ESG marketplace compete effectively against whatever the, the, the short-term fad is for capital? Well, I mean, there, there are structural challenges with getting certain investments. Like there, yeah. there are certain types of uh, what, if you move over from kind of financial only to responsible investments to, you know, to sustainable investments where you're considering both risks and opportunities, and then you start to go into impact investments and thinking about, um, giving up certain financial returns. On. And then you even go further than that, you end up in charity and types of areas like that. But, but there can be kind of where, you, where you're focusing on impact investments, where, where there are certain technologies that aren't going to be economically viable in the same way or competitive with other certain, uh, certain forms of investments. But in a way, we have to maybe think about what we, what would make that viable and do we believe that ultimately there are going to be certain um you know there'll be certain government support or tax breaks for some of these companies that do solve specific problems like that that transform uh that kind of business uh to make it more more viable there's there's nothing um 
you know, there's no easy solution to short, you know, short-term thinking and short-term profitability versus kind of a longer-term uh, view on something that doesn't appear to be that that uh, that sexy or in the market. But in fact, if we think long-term, it may be that some of these things that are hyped and then and then drop in value. And I think cannabis is one of those examples that, you know, look, there's been an incredible growth in uh, in you know, in, particularly in Canada in terms of the development of you know of the cannabis market and now we have consumption of alcohol and cannabis and other certain recreational kind of uh things like that so that 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 amount according to statscan is now greater than the the amount that people pay uh, p- people spend on their personal health care like that's amazing when you think about it you know that 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 they've they've actually jumped ahead in the middle of a pandemic like personal healthcare isn't that important when when we're dealing with this massive health issue. So, you know, I I don't know that uh, there's an easy solution to the question of should we be in, should we be investing in just what's hot or uh, being, uh, uh, you know, is there a lot of FOMO uh, going on? Probably Uh, ultimately in the long term, if you can really solve some of these big challenges in an economic way uh, and that makes sense uh, with or without government support, because definitely a couple of things for sure are coming. Taxes on, on emitters and, and certain, certain companies are going to be increased. You know, tariffs and things like that are coming in. And then uh, benefits for some of these other companies that are going to be supportive, which will greatly improve their profitability picture, are also likely to come forward. Governments have shown one thing during the pandemic for sure, and that is they have no problem printing more money to allocate to, 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 to prop up certain businesses. And as this goes forward, I think we'll see that, that the direction of that tilts heavily towards ESG so that you have a secular trend away from the past where, you know, that if we looked at, you know, looked at the top companies in 2001 or even 2008, and you'd likely see lots and lots of the uh, the oil producing companies uh, at the top of that list. And now that's that's not so. That uh, we have we have dramatically changed in terms of valuation in the market. And and that that trend is likely to continue for those reasons. Because yeah, please. I'm respectful. Sorry, no, I'm just I'm respectful. I'm trying to be respectful to uh, Dr. Cleary. Yeah. Um, time, and we're we're at an hour. 40 minutes here um, with lots of productive coverage of the topic, but um, I want to suggest that maybe we put a pin in it here and save something for yeah. discussion at our next meeting of the mind. Well, well, thank, thank you very much, Absolutely. Pierre and Adam and uh, Dr. Cleary. Thank you very much for uh, joining us. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you to you both as well. Thank you, John. Thank you, Dr. Cleary. Uh, maybe, ask, maybe ask John. Okay, John. John can answer. Yeah. First. So, John, uh, last question. Would you rather spend a week in the past or spend a week in the future? A week in the future. And why? I would definitely have to go a week in the future uh, because there are, uh, uh, there are so many things that are coming forward. Uh, I, I, as much as I think it would be fascinating to go into the past, go and see certain uh developments historical or even prehistory and see what the world was like you know 
65 million years ago or something like that i think that would be fascinating to see some of that uh, but also i i i'm hopeful for humanity and i'd like to see what we come up with for the future and i think that we are going to tackle these problems as long as we recognize that it's uh that it's you know that that some of this is uh is life and is uh important life is on the line in certain areas like we are in an extinction event um but i think that there are going to be wonderful opportunities and and there's a wonderful opportunity for ingenuity to kick in so i think i'm very hopeful for the future and i believe that we are going to solve a lot of these problems and i do think we're going to solve the climate problem as well and i'm hopeful for what uh humanity can develop so i would love to go into the future and see we what we come up with rather than than into the past necessarily and know where we've been. So hopefully that makes sense. Awesome. Thank yep. you. Yep. Thank you very much, John. Very thoughtful. Thanks, Adam. Thank you. Thank you.